to the lost souls, the disintegrated spirits, the wanderers, the dreamers, and the seekers. Welcome to the Embodied Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Danielle McGinnis. Our work in this podcast will be to foster healing, transformation, self-expression, creativity, and the development of consciousness. So with our intentions grounded firmly, let's settle in and do some integration work. Hey friends, happy Thursday and welcome back to another episode of the Embody Podcast. If you guys are loving what you're hearing on the show, I would really appreciate it if you slid over to iTunes, dropped a five-star rating or a written review and just let me know what you are loving about the show, what you want to hear more of, what you want to hear less of, any and all feedback is welcome. That feedback gets the show organically into more ears and more souls across the world. Those of you who are regular listeners out there might have noticed that I skipped Sunday and almost didn't even post one today, but I wanted to um, just fill you guys in that every time I get towards the end of a semester in my PhD program, I have to write about 30 pages of academic material, and that is a process for me that it's hard to create extraneous material when I'm focusing on on that, and so um, appreciate the grace with you know, the spontaneity of releasing the episodes as opposed to just having them every Thursday, every Sunday, every Thursday, every Sunday. But for those of you who are new to the podcast, there are almost 200 now episodes between season one and season two of the podcast. So feel free to go back and listen to all of the things as my thoughts evolve often. Um, So before we dive into today's episode, which is actually me unpacking one of the papers that I wrote this past weekend, I wanted to let you guys know that my Wounded Woman workshop series that I had been talking about on my last couple podcasts, I left it open for drop-ins. So if anybody didn't get the chance to join and they wanted to join, it is a donation-based offering where we're unpacking the book, The Wounded Woman by Linda Leonard. So our next meeting is this coming Monday. think that's the 28th of March. Yes, at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we're going to be going over the first chapter of that book, so the father-daughter wound. And so if you are interested or were interested in joining and thought you missed it, I'm leaving it open so you can drop in. Just drop a donation and you'll get the link to join the call. The other thing is that my fiance and I are starting our next book club, Next month, April 24th, we have our first orientation call, and that book is going to be Trauma in the Soul by Donald Cowshed, and it's going to offer a psycho-spiritual approach to trauma healing. And so if you like being intellectually and spiritually stretched, this book club certainly is for you. If you are a practitioner that works with trauma or is interested in learning about different perspectives around trauma, this is also for you. Or if you are just a human in the modern world who has experienced any trauma at all, um, which is probably every single person, it's such an interesting book. So I encourage you guys to go to the link in the show notes to check out the details on that. So moving into today's podcast, I wanted to really unpack the paper that I wrote because I wrote a paper about the goddess Hestia and her appearance, her movement, her flow in the trauma healing space and I just feel like it's really relevant given what I the context of me taking some time off and really focusing on the paper and focusing on the research around the paper and that writing process so that I could tend the Hestian flame And so this paper is called Birthing Hestia because Hestia's birth story is actually really, really interesting. But the way that I unpack this paper is just like I did in the Myth of the Vagus Nerve paper is taking an archetypal psychology approach. So we're working with this mythic figure, this mythic image, and working with the movement, um, the characteristics, the traits, the birth story mythologically 
of these different characters and then um, weaving that in and out between lived experience and phenomenal experience and so it really creates this kind of rich way of opening up different perspectives to what can be quite dogmatic perspectives of the trauma healing space and so I wanted to just read through this paper just like I did with the myth of the vagus nerve because I think it might just offer a different way of thinking relating and moving with and through experiences of trauma so the paper starts with a quote by Peter Levine. So Peter Levine is the founder of Somatic Experiencing, which I am going through almost more than halfway done, my Somatic Experiencing practitioner training. But Somatic Experiencing is a nervous system-focused trauma healing methodology. And so Peter Levine, the founder of SE, is quoted to have said that living with unresolved trauma is akin to living through hell on earth. Yet, trauma resolved is a gift from the gods. So with this statement, one might wonder who are the gods that are gifting an individual with the possibility of trauma resolution? And what does Peter Levine actually mean by trauma resolution? Does his statement imply that the telos of trauma healing is resolution? And my question, are are the gods not also present in unresolved trauma. So although the SE approach offers a very, very thorough physiological framework to guide traumatized individuals somatically through incomplete nervous system states, I find Levine's quote to be a reflection of a one-sided fantasy that implies that the gods only offer gifts in the resolution of trauma. And this denies the presence of myth and the presence of God within our symptoms of trauma. So archetypally, the gods just are. They show their multivalent nature and they move in a way that is outside of human morality. So trauma healing from a depth psychological perspective pulls one closer to the truths that are fine within the divine myths that show themselves through our symptoms. So this process is about deepening into and engaging with the mythopoetic movement of the inner pantheon. So that's basically what I was saying in my last um, podcast where I read my Myth of the Vegas Nerve paper. Very, very similar themes going on here. But this process of deepening into our mythopoetic movement that, that's a complex way of orienting and it takes practice. So Hillman said that these mythical figures, like my afflictions, are tragical, monstrous, and unnatural, and their effects upon my soul perturb to excess. Only in mythology does pathology receive an adequate mirror, since myths speak with the same distorted, fantastic language. So to evolve Peter Levine's quotation about trauma resolved as a gift from the gods, I would evolve that to be inclusive of the multiplicity of psyche, and I offer that unresolved trauma is akin to living a life that's disconnected from the spontaneous myths that unconsciously move us. And trauma resolved is a reverent relationship to the mythopoetic matrix that is soul. So carrying forward Hillman's reverence for the archetypal presences within our pathologies, we must hold an open curiosity to which persons of the psyche and within which myth does my affliction belong and does it bespeak an obligation. So archetypally amplifying symptoms of trauma is like an archeological exploration into the myths within our symptoms. But this perspective Side note, this perspective actually, um, there's a lot of hiccups in my own practice, in my own work with people, because what this perspective does is it renegotiates the illusion that trauma healing circles around the I, the ego, which it doesn't actually in my perspective. Hillman said that for the ego is not the whole psyche, only one member of a commune. 
Therapy works through the paradox of admitting that all figures and feelings of the psyche are wholly mine, while at the same time recognizing that these figures and feelings are free of my control and my identity, not mine at all. This orientation to trauma is not often found in modern humanistic approaches. These approaches prioritize the absence of symptoms at the top of its hierarchy. And through this monotheistic lens, trauma can only be found meaningful if there's symptom resolution. But trauma healing that is inclusive of the full archetypal matrix is receptive to the happenings of many gods, as well as the meaning inherent within their images. So Hillman, again, a lot of Hillman quotes. Hillman said that the discerning question, which keeps consciousness aware in the welter and profusion, is the eternal who. That is answered never by one single archetype or god, but always by this one in, per- in its particular constellation with others. These constellations are precisely what mythogyms describe. They are descriptions, not of gods, but of patterns, of interactions, of gods in their p- complexities. Gods apart from myths are abstractions. Gods are relations and always imply each other. So this statement by Hellman moves the suffering individual to look into the multiplicity and the configurations of the gods together. And this process leads to the development of the skill of discernment, finding the what and the who present in the symptom of trauma. So... On this podcast and in this paper, I've written that I have already explored two specific archetypal dynamics commonly found in symptoms of trauma. So in an essay called The Myth of the Vagus Nerve, which I did a podcast on, I discussed the movement between the archetypal synex and the puer within navigating the trauma. So in that essay, I discussed the wandering spirit of the puer, the eternal boy nature having an essential influence on the movement through trauma so the god there is hermes an archetypal mover he's the archetypal mover of a coagulated trauma state yet we must be careful not to again fall into the trap of a one-sided monotheistic perspective of trauma healing we can't explore hermes in isolation So if we assume only the single goal of trauma healing, the movement of Hermes, then we've forgotten about the mythic multiplicity that is psychologically sound. So what about when the psyche is not in constant motion? Does that imply that things are stuck or that that there are gods and goddesses that present a different relationship to movement? So the psyche does not need all parts to be moving all the time. So that would neglect the gods and goddesses antithetical to the movement of Hermes. Centering and stillness is also a psychological necessity in our mythopoetic drama of navigating trauma. The centering and stillness that I speak of here belongs to Hestia. Hestia's birth story, mythologically and psychologically, will be the focus of this podcast. It is my intention to amplify the nature of Hestia's birth, as well as the images associated with her coming into being, her interactions with other gods and goddesses, and her phenomenal appearance around trauma. Hillman stated that for a rule of archetypal psychology is, start right where you are. Don't escape by looking for origins or solutions. Just begin in the midst of the mess. And so we are going to begin in the mess surrounding the birth of the Olympian goddess Hestia. So if you don't know anything about Hestia to this point, this might be interesting. So, oh, and another side note too, because in the past I actually did a podcast on Jean Shinoda Bolin's book, uh, Goddesses in Every Woman. Years later, I'm like, okay, so I don't necessarily agree with that because, um, from an archetypal psychology perspective, got these like myths, images, and gods are not psychological types. Like they're not personality styles because that means that you're using the gods to s- center around you and to know yourself better. That actually spontaneously happens by amplifying the myth 
And so the gods aren't personality types like she kind of expresses in that book. The gods are the spontaneous movement of psyche. And by connecting to that spontaneous movement, I think is where we actually deepen into and have a better relationship to our sense of I and our innate type, our personality traits. So that was just a side note. So the birth of Hestia. So it is said that Hestia was paradoxically the first and last born daughter of Rhea and Kronos. In the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite, it was said that Hestia was the firstborn child of Kronos, and so the first to be devoured and the last to be disgorged. Therefore, Hestia is known as both the oldest and the youngest child of Kronos and Rhea. Kronos, who was the also known as Saturn, um, Kronos, the king of the Titans, was the youngest descendant of the primordial sky god Uranus. So Kronos was the only child who was willing to help his mother, who is Gaia, in freeing his siblings from the titanic oppression of his father Uranus. So Gaia, Uranus, all titans, Rhea a titan, Kronos is a titan. So if you don't, side note, if you don't know the story, um, Uranus was afraid that he, his throne was going to be usurped. And so, um, Gaia basically asked her children to help her, um, basically usurp his throne. And Kronos was the only one willing to help his mother in doing that. And that's when he, um, takes a sickle and castrates his father and throws his testicles in the, in the ocean. And that's where the birth of Aphrodite came from. So that's its own myth, but kind of interesting. Um, so Kronos was the only child willing to help his mother in freeing his siblings from this titanic oppression of his father. Yet, following this castration of his father, Kronos too express the limitless, destructive, and devouring force of titanism via devouring his offspring. So this is a Hesiod quote. Um, the great Kronos swallowed as each came forth from the womb to his mother's knees with this intent that no other of the proud sons of Uranus should hold kingly office amongst the deathless gods. For he learned from Gaia and starry Uranus that he was destined to be overcome by his own son, strong though he was, through the contriving of great Zeus. Therefore, Kronos kept no blind look, but watched and swallowed down his children. So the Titanism of Kronos archetypally refers to the enormity of power, a limitless force that is uncontained and invisible. So Hillman quotes Lopez Pedraza in saying that the Titans, because they are invisible and unimaged, therefore they do not have limits. And without image, they become pure expansion, limitless. So the Titans are the realm of the limitless, of the excess. So with this immensity of force, titanic force, it is challenging to usurp the old ruling principle to challenge Kronos. And he swallows his kids so that none of his kids do. So before the birth of Zeus... Kronos does not allow any of his children, these new divine potentials, to enter, as new potentials imply limiting the old excess, the old ruling principle. So according to Lopez Pedraza, that mythology can help us differentiate between the Olympians with their many forms of life and the Titans with no forms, no images, and no limits. So at this point in our myth, Hestia is held deep within the darkness in the invisibility of titanic consciousness. So she, her father Kronos had swallowed her and she remains in the dark, incubating, invisible, awaiting her rebirth. So it's not until the birth of Zeus that the rebirth of Hestia becomes a possibility. So mythologically, the movement of Rhea, along with the help and wise counsel of Gaia, combine to help Zeus usurp Kronos, this masculine, destructive, titanic force. 
So this is the catalyst that must occur in order for Hestia, along with her other siblings that were swallowed, to be released from the devouring titan. Psychologically, it is the connection to the fertility and the generativity of the feminine, so Rhea and Gaia, in combination with the creative force with the great mother, Gaia, that tricks Kronos and prevents him from swallowing Zeus. So in this myth, what happens is Rhea is sent to this land of Crete and she was getting ready to have birth to Zeus, who was prophesied to be the one that overthrows Kronos. So Kronos was waiting to swallow him. So basically she gives birth in this cave. Gaia takes Zeus from her and takes Zeus to raise him. So I'll get to what happens here. But (laughs) the etymology of Rhea comes from the Greek word meaning to flow. And it is through the flow and the ease of the feminine that a change in the dynamic with the devouring masculine is constellated. Gaia comes from the ancient word gi, meaning to meaning land or earth. So Hillman describes this as the rituals and the laws that guarantee fertility, like a governing maternal principle that makes material fertile possible and is its spiritual ground. So this fertile ground of the feminine between Gaia and Rhea allows for these divine potentials, so all of the gods and goddesses that Cronus had swallowed, this divine potential is is open to be released via this fertile ground of the feminine which I think is quite symbolic so what happens is Rhea gives Kronos a stone wrapped in swaddling cloths and Kronos in his destructive devouring nature thinks it's Zeus so he swallows a stone in the place of his newborn son and so when Zeus was grown up he combines with these other goddesses and they give Kronos a drug and a medic and he vomits out all of the kids that he had swallowed so again it is this creative feminine feminine generativity that evokes the free-flowing nature of the Olympian gods and goddesses so this is the start of the Olympian pantheon the move from titanism to the Olympian gods and goddesses. So it is the movement of the feminine in combination with Zeus that we move from titanism to the realm of the gods. Hillman speaks of Zeus as having a range of fantasy that was comprehensive, large, generous, and differentiated. Titanic hugeness can be encompassed and contained only by an equally large capacity of inspired image making. Zeus, who is truly about the ordering power of differentiated imagination, a polytheistic nature. So without the polytheistic movement of all these gods and goddesses, we're left without access to Hestia, her myths, her movements, her presence, or any of the other gods and goddesses. So we will move into birthing Hestia. So that was the birth story of Hestia mythologically. So birthing Hestia. So what is happening when we give birth to Hestia psychologically? In my residential discussion, we discussed Hestia relating to the various etymologies. So ESTS means to be or the essence of all things. Estia means hearth, household, family, altar. And then Vesta and vase means to inhabit. So moving with, into, and through Hestian consciousness allows one to connect with the felt sense of Hestia's way of being. This is a being where the warmth of Hestia's flame is felt in all things. We begin to notice the warmth of Hestia as the movement of psyche when it evolves from an elevated, monotheistic, devouring, ruling principle of Titanism, Kronos, towards a descent into the polytheistic movement of the gods and goddesses. So Hillman said that the first great task of the gods was 
to defeat the Titans and thrust them into Tartarus, where they were to be kept away from the human earth forever. So our first step in psychologically birthing Hestia is to recognize our shadow propensity for Titanism recognizing our propensity to move away from the contained imagining that is held within the Olympians and towards the realm of the enormous, limitless power of Titanism, towards the limitless spirit away from psyche in matter. So humans find the highest value and the deepest meaning in these archetypal expressions of the gods and goddesses. And Hillman said that without the gods, the titans return. So after we recognize our propensity for that way of being, that like limitless power and push towards excess, that is our shadow of titanism that is so rampant in our culture. Um, my professor also wrote a paper um, about the the ship, the Titanic, and how that relates to titanic forces um, in the shadow of that. So if you're interested in that, look up a paper. I forget what it's called about, but it's Titanic by Glenn Slater. I don't know what the full title is. So after recognizing our propensity for Titanism, we must call forward Zeus and his ordering power of differentiated imagination. So what we can do is use this Zeusian gift of differentiation to contrast the nature of Hestia as an Olympian goddess against the backdrop of Kronos the Titan. And it's through differentiating those two gods, goddesses, that we are able to understand the resonance and the dissonance between their archetypal values. So, when we differentiate things and separate them like this and hold them up, what that does is it holds up a mirror to the possibility of us seeing our shadows of the titanic possession while simultaneously bringing us into a deeper awareness of Hestian consciousness, which is the whole point of this paper. So in order to amplify the archetypal contrast between Kronos and Hestia, I will expand upon two paradoxical archetypal values that connect the two. And these values are order and limit. And I will discuss how each of those archetypal expressions may show itself differently in the traumatized psyche. So the first one is order, all right? So in the mythologies that describe the Titanic movement, so... Kronos, there is an obvious reflection of an attempt towards order. So Kronos attempts to create order, order via declaring his reign as supreme and devouring anything that would disrupt this reign. This style of order presents itself as strict inclusion. A human experience of trauma is a psychological thrust into the enormity of Titanism. By definition, trauma is an experience that is too much, too fast, and too soon for the human to handle. When a human is propelled into the realm of the titans, they can become possessed by this titanic way of ordering, and we see its influence of titanic consciousness in the modern psyches of traumatized individuals who are disconnected from the deeper Olympian gods and goddesses. So, what happens is these individuals unconsciously live in fear or denial of the possibility of anything new entering into their lives. So this is akin to the archetypal devouring father who destroys any new divine potential by swallowing it and casting it into the darkness, far from consciousness. Symptoms of this archetypal drama are the rejection of new relationships, new creative projects, new stories, and new ways of orienting to the world. And we can totally see this in our the ways that the symptoms of our trauma express themselves. Um, so Hillman states that we imagine the defeat of excess by the means of tougher laws, harder education, and severe systems of management. However, the cure of enormity through more discipline is but an allopathic measure. A cure through the opposite often leads to a righteous puritanical totalitarianism. So this is where we can open up to a new form of order, a Hestian order. 
So Hestia's order sits in contrast to that of her titanic father. Her order comes via her symbolism of centering as well as ritual and sacrifice. So according to Kirksey, Hestia's center is not a place of harmony or integration. This, is set, this center actually contains pathology. Although Hestia's center contains pathology, the pathology is just that. In Hestian consciousness, it's contained. So in revisioning psychology, Hillman amplifies when our pathologies are literalized and not inclusive of Hestia, it is through the multiple schizoid perspective that we see a world no longer held together by reason, no longer held or centered at all. So to archetypally engage with an experience of trauma without Hestia's centering flame is to have the feeling of being pulled off center, out of the realm of the gods and goddesses, into the realm of the excessive, limitless, imageless titans. Kirksey said that her absence threatens the entire psychic structure of the personality with chaos. And this chaos that we experience from trauma is exactly what Hestia contains. She offers a type of focusing of the personality that warms all the affected inner figures around her fire of soul. She does this without the cold totalitarianism of titanic order. Kirksey said that it is a way of finding a place for one's illnesses and wounds. Also, Hestia's emphasis on ritual and sacrifice also contribute to the move away from titanic totalitarianism. Hestia's hearth altar is where our pathologies become discriminated through ritual and sacrifice. According to Cicero, so this is a 1 um, BCE um, quote, the goddess whom they call Hestia, her power extends over hearths and altars, and therefore all prayers and sacrifices start and end with this goddess because she is the guardian of the innermost things. So the fact that Hestia was always offered the first and last prayer on any occasion allows us to connect to her potency of presence, the enormity of her presence in small acts of sacrifice. So this type of sacrifice is unconditionally supportive for she is always at the altar nourishing the souls of those who can connect to her center. And it is through the ritualistic altar of Hestia we may lay down our titanic propensity for fear and denial of those experiences which limit us and threaten to open us to something new, trying to enter the psyche. We echo the religious sentiment that offers a centering pull towards the soul by saying, not my will, Hestia, but yours. Hestia gives archetypal depth to our wounds, transforming them from personal ashes to sacrificial fires. Hestia's order is one of religious deepening. Hestia is the heat, the heart, and the center in which we live and also forget in our daily rounds. So just to extend on that just a little bit, there are so many times when we parts of our trauma or parts of our psyche have experienced trauma that we will not sacrifice our willpower of the way that we want things to be so our need for control our need to manipulate situations and all of this is an attempt to cling on to that kind of titanic way of dealing with things and it is the hestian form of con consciousness that is a constant warming flame at the center of our being that we can trust to be there that we can make the sacrifice of our will and say you know I'm gonna lay this in front of this you know some of the things that I do with clients who have experienced trauma is to make them think about something that means so much to them and ask them if they are willing to sacrifice that thing are they willing to let go of that thing are they willing to lay that down at Hestia's altar and say, maybe if I let this go, something new might be able to enter? And that is saying, I'm not going to operate from the, from the way of Kronos and swallow all the opportunities and potentials for new things to enter. 
but I'm going to lay down my will, my drive, my excessive force so that something new may enter. So moving on to limit. So another focus uh, of Hestia allows us to experience the centering attention that warms to life all that comes within its radius. So Hestia has a special connection to spaces and spatiality. Um, Kirksey said that her psychological value, what that offers is her ability, her ability to mediate soul by giving a place to congregate, a gathering point. So the sacred gathering point of Hestia's hearth and flame deepen her limits, her staying power. Her image and her place are the same, so she does not stray. So this is amplified when Plato and Phaedrus said that when the eleven gods travel to Olympus, Hestia alone abides at home. So Hestia and her centering hearth offer a refuge from the wars that are being waged outside of her walls. So I'll continue before I explain. The temple of Vesta was spatially positioned at the center of a town. So that temple received many foreigners. So psychologically, this sacred temple in ourselves is the space at the center that is able to receive the others within our psyche, the foreigners, the parts of ourselves that feel foreign, the shadows. And the fire at the center of the temple required constant attention. So it is this gathering place within ourselves that evokes the spirit of the hearth. It's something that presides over community. So it mediates and integrates the differences among people to that are devoted and um, are preparing this, this, this sacred space. And that is so similar to what we often need with trauma healing and sometimes that is what the container I build with my clients is is this warm space that is constant and it is centering it is integrating and it is there right receiving all parts of the psyche even those parts that um, don't necessarily feel like they belong it's not like the movement of Hermes, like I talked about in the myth of the vagus nerve, Hermes was very quick and very, um, he would travel and wander and move. And Hestia is almost the complete opposite. She stays, she stays at the center. And so hopefully that evokes an image of that staying power within ourselves because that obviously affects, um, a lot of things like when we feel off center when we feel like our relationships are off center it's because we're missing that hestian flame the hestian consciousness but anyway this this um space spatiality the ability to contain at the center reminded me of the poem the guest house by rumi and it's interesting because that poem has been just circling in my in my um, client work. So if you've never heard it, the guest house by Rumi goes, this being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house, empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight, the dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from the beyond. So it is as if Rumi was influenced by Hestian consciousness. This is the consciousness that invites all to her hearth and greets them at her door, yet also finds a way to create boundaries, containment, and limits during the visit. So this style of Hestian limit and containment are crucial when you're working with trauma. So this type of inner reveals itself within the walls. So the weaving in and out of Hestian limit in SE work is called pendulation. 
So we step into this space of resource where the nervous system can be warmed against the soul flame of Hestia. And though Hestia lacks body as object, she is the ensouled space where there is a living quality of presence. Without this gathering space as body, there is no limits, no sacred limits, no space for the ensouled. And without this, psychologically what we see is a violent pendulum swing between identification with our instinctual responses to trauma and titanic limitlessness. So this type of violent swing towards excess is what shamanic practitioners would call soul loss and what western practitioners call dissociation. So we swing out from our center, our warm Hestian center, into the realm of limitlessness. So now we're going to move into talking about titanic limitlessness. So to reiterate, Zeus was the mythological figure that challenged the limitlessness of Kronos, what Lopez Pedraza called uncontrolled violence without limits, that is excess. So I see the excessive and the violent nature of Titanism to be a primary influence on our threats of psychic annihilation. So this psychic excess in humans constellates a variety of symptoms associated with dissociation. But through the lens of archetypal psychology, the individual has swung so far from the embers of Hestia's eternal flame that the sacred containment that is a psychological necessity for soul-making is no longer available. And so in order to deal with this dissociated possession into Titanism, the individual fills themselves up with addictions, codependent and abusive relationships, has chronic sickness, and experiences workaholism, and what I see this as is a p- perversion of the ritual, um, a Hestian ritual. So this perversion of ritual is an individual's attempt to escape from the dissociative realm of excess of the Titans. Archetypal psychology offers a way to see through that pathology of excess. We see in this that there is a right impulse, an impulse to return to the sacred rituals of Hestia yet a perversion of the religious instinct. We see in the rituals to the Titans, there is always a need for more. So whenever we're, you know, I work with clients who have eating disorders and what's really important to them is their rituals, whether that's body checking, counting calories, monitoring workouts, like these rituals are rituals, but the rituals to the Titans, there's always a need for more more highs more lows more help more love there's never enough as is where where there would be in hestia so this unconscious tyrannical limit is imposed on the psyche via addiction and compulsion um, found in the realm of the titans and it is far from the sacred dwelling place of hestia so in the traumatized psyche the unconscious boundaries that exist do not foster a space of integrating the inherent movement of the gods and goddesses. Instead, these limits mirror the movement of the devouring aspect of Kronos, who left no space for new divine potentials to exist. Instead, he imprisoned the potentialities that were trying to enter into the darkness, undigested, far from consciousness. This is exactly what happens in trauma healing. When we're offering rituals to the wrong god right wrong based on what the value is here what's happening the the symptoms that we get are manifesting as a result of asking the question who is that ritual going to and so if you're doing rituals that evoke the excess and the limitlessness of the titans that's what your symptoms are going to reflect and so those symptoms will imprison any new thing trying to enter into the psyche, just like Kronos swallowed his kids and didn't let anything new enter into psyche. So even though Hestia is a paradoxical figure who many scholars and mythologists have often left out of writings, there's not a lot written about Hestia, I believe that Hestia deserves a more elaborate investigation, discussion, 
a deep contemplation and an engagement because it is through her that we find that sacred space in the essence of all things. She is the paradoxical first and last, inner and outer, a metaphorical bridge out of these titanic shadows of modern consciousness that we see everywhere. And although I've only discussed her contrast of order and limit in this essay, I would love to write further on um, include her image as flame, aspects of her virginity, and her relationship with Hermes because her and Hermes have a connection and psychologically they're quite opposite. Hestia doesn't leave the center, Hermes goes out and wander, there's a slow constant flame and there's a quickness to Hermes. So by deepening into this archetypal nature of Hestia, we see the necessity for her ensouled space of in, being in, within. So by amplifying her and contrasting her with her titan father, we can see the multiplicity of the gifts of an archetypal perspective of trauma healing because it's not in the resolution of trauma that we find the gifts, as Peter Levine stated at the beginning. It's in the multiplicity, it's the difference the different stories and movements of the gods and goddesses that we find the gift. Without bringing Hestia into consciousness, we wouldn't have access to her gift. And after all, Hillman said that the psyche seems more interested in the movement of its ideas than the resolution of its problems. So we see this in our exploration into the nature, nature of Hestia's birth and her rebirth story. She has gifted us with a spontaneous psychological opening into the inherent activity of the soul. And this, I think, is what the trauma space needs to create a sacred space for Hestia, for her complexities and her intricacies and her slowness and her warmth. And her presence in trauma healing is one of paradox. Yet these are paradoxes that warm, contain, and bring us back to the ensouled center that constellates psychological soul making. So that is my essay on Hestia. I, you know, these are academic, PhD level academic essays, so I don't expect all of you to really understand all of it, but I do, when I'm like reading like an academic paper, an essay, and I'm especially Hillman, um, there is this feeling as if, taking an attitude of not knowing, dropping my need to grasp it, to understand it, to make it about me, but to let the material kind of infuse me, like infuse into Psyche. Like what, was there a part of this podcast that you heard and you were like, oh yeah, I really relate to that. Well, those are the places where we go into deep contemplation. We ask questions like, what does that evoke what comes up in me when that springs forward? Is it a feeling of deep anxiety? Is it a sense of dread? Is it a repulsion or disgust? Like all these different things can be doorways into a deeper, a deepening of our experiences. And for me, I think it's so important to recognize that like, Trauma healing is not about just feeling better. It's about having a deep relationship to the psychic nature of what's happening in that trauma. And that's really why I love Cowshed's Trauma and the Soul book is because he uses different images, different myths, but he's kind of evoking the same kind of push towards opening the space of trauma healing away from just the literal and the physiological you know saying like reducing it down to like attachment theories or uh reducing it down to like this is why i do what i do because this happened like that just stagnates psyche because psyche is wanting our consciousness to move forward in alchemy what i really love about alchemy is like the metals that are being worked on want to be refined they they want to move and to be improved and it isn't with our reduction our simplification of things that that happens and so um with this 
podcast, just encouraging you, well, with anything really, um, encouraging you like to contemplate this, to feel into this, to, to critically think about what this means in your life. Like where, where are the Titans influencing you? Where, because the Titans can show up in this like really, um, ambition gets excessive and it pulls us away from that Hestian center, right? Hestia goes back into the belly of her father. And so she's in this dark place where we don't have a center now because everything is being driven by excessive ambition. And we see that so much culturally that we have these personal relationships to these myths, but also our cultural connection to these myths. So again, just taking certain aspects of this podcast and really contemplating and critically thinking because I think that right now that is what we are in dire need for is a deep, a deepening and a connection to what's happening below the surface in those spaces that we cannot see. Um, so I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode, this spontaneous episode. Um, I wanted to read back through my paper, but also offer you guys um, some material and just to drop in and say, hey, I'm not not going on vacation, not absent. I'm just working on some things. And so um, I believe on Sunday, Rick and I are going to do a deep end about spiritual materialism, about more on the realm of the Titans, because it's just something that's super interesting to me. And then we're also going to do a podcast at some point on um, some of the quotes from Trauma in the Soul. So again, if you guys are interested in joining the dropping into the Wounded Woman Workshop or joining the Trauma in the Soul Book Club, both of those are donation-based, so you choose the price. Um, and you can find the information to that in the show notes. So I hope that you guys have a great weekend and we will chat on Sunday. Bye guys.